Uh, we're going to begin this morning, though. Um, we need to talk about a topic that is, is very um, serious, is important in our British culture. Uh, that's the topic of queuing. How do we queue? Now, fewer things are a greater measurement of fairness to Brits than a queue and how you act in a queue. Now, you know that scenario, don't you? You're at the supermarket, you're queuing, you're in this long queue, you've been there for quite a while, progress is being made slowly, and suddenly the till next to it, they open it and they call out, next please. And whilst you're engaging that awkward conversation with the person in front of you, do you, you want to, shall I? A person behind sneaks in. They don't even look, they avoid eye contact, ashamed of their un-British behavior. Or how do you feel in that moment? Or have you ever been in a hospital and played the game, what ailment does that person have? It's the way that we kind of suppress that rising sense of unfairness when people get ahead of us in that queue. You know, I've, I've been here for an hour, that person's just walked in, like, well, what's wrong with them? I can tell you from experience, some of the magic words are, my wife's just had heart surgery and uh, her resting heart rate's 160. I think this moves you straight to the front there. Uh, but you do have this sense of eyes boring into you as everyone's watching. Like, why are they jumping ahead? Or the motorway. You're on the car. We're going down to one lane. We've all moved across. We're in that lane. We're moving slowly to get to the junction. And you see out the corner of your eye, the right-hand side, some car shooting down. You know what that means. They're going to go right to the end and try and pull in at the last moment. How do you feel in that moment? There is something primal that comes out when we're behind a wheel. You want evidence of the doctrine of original sin? Just put people in a traffic jam right, and you will see it. How do you feel at that moment when you see that car shooting past you? I must admit, I hope, I'm sitting there thinking, I hope no one lets them in. That they are stuck there now. Probably some people here, oh, that's me, shooting down. Maybe just to take it to something that's, that's fairly recent. So just the last few weeks, there were tensions uh, with the EU about vaccines. They're going to put some restrictions on what the UK can get because AstraZeneca, they were behind in what they were able to produce. They said to the EU, look, we can't give you what we said we would, but the UK, we can give them what we said because they signed it three months earlier. All these tensions. In Brussels, apparently, they said, we don't accept first come, first served. Dangerous thing to say to a Brit. There's no standing here. They say, first come, first served. Forget about it. When you heard that story, how did you react? Well, we, well, well first come, first serve, that's, that's fair. We signed up three months before. Surely we should get access. But then, of course, hearing that the UK, in total, we've managed to get about 367 million doses of a vaccine. That's over five times the population. Does that change it? What's fair in that situation? Does first come, first serve still stand? Now, my point is not to make some sort of political statement, but rather to provoke uh, an internal reaction. Because the way that we react to these situations, it reveals something of our deep-seated beliefs about what we think is fair. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at 
uh, the parable of, well, the workers is what the NIV calls it, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And parables function in different ways. Well, sometimes Jesus tells a parable and it, it depicts, it describes something. Now here, this parable disarms us. A bit like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan. These parables designed to disarm. We get sucked into the story. And as we get sucked into the story, uh, the emotive aspect, we lower our guard and our reaction reveals something about what is going on in our own hearts. Now, one of the challenges in studying these parables is that as we study them, we tend to bypass that emotive aspect. We look at it, we recognize who the good guys are, we side with the good guys, and we fail to see what's going on in our own hearts. Hence, one of the reasons I wanted to just draw out some emotive reactions at the start. Perhaps when your guard was down, but before you suddenly bring your guard up as we study this parable. And so some of the questions we are going to consider this morning as we look through this parable. Now, what's our response? What's your response to this parable? And then how are you going to respond to your response? Before we do that, um, just a few words of background. Then Rich gave us a bit of a summary before we went in. So we are picking up from what we were looking at last week. Now, this all follows on. So Jesus, he meets this young man who comes up to him, asking him what to do to inherit eternal life. Uh, and we, we focused on about we need to change, we can't change, but we can be changed. A sense of lack, this man has it, and Jesus reveals, okay, what is this lack? What is it that you lack? And it's lacking in failing to reflect God, to image God perfectly, completely. The image of God is distorted within us, and we considered Living distortions of the one who alone is good is never a good thing. There's this need for change. And Jesus says to the young man, verse 21, if you want to be perfect, you want to be complete, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. We focused on the emphasis being the following me element. But this young man goes away. He's sad. He doesn't do that. He doesn't come and follow Jesus. And we also then considered that it, we can't change. What is, um, this is not possible for man, Jesus says in verse 26. But with God, all things are possible, so we can be changed. Jesus talks about this impossibility for us to enter into the kingdom of God, but God can bring it about. Now, at this point then, Peter suddenly pipes up in verse 27. And he says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter's been listening to this conversation and Jesus has said to this young man, sell everything and you will have treasure in heaven. Peter pipes up and he says, Jesus, we have done that. We have sold everything. You've been speaking about a reward. What is this reward for us and what is it going to look like? And Jesus goes on to make these promises. What is lost is nothing compared to what is gained. And yet Jesus discerns this sense of entitlement in Peter's words. Now already the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves, who is the greatest? 
And in just a few verses later of chapter 20, it's going to happen again. James and John. This vying for power and who is the greatest. And so Jesus, as he speaks to the disciples in chapter 19, he says, yes, following me, you are not going to lose out. Now, what is lost is nothing compared to what is gained. But, verse 30, but many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. And in saying this, Jesus completely undercuts this attitude of entitlement. And what he actually means by this enigmatic saying, it gets unpacked in the following parable. And you may have noticed uh, verse 30 and then verse 16 of chapter 20, they're kind of like two bookends. It's the same parable, slightly different wording, but it's repeated. And so what that means gets unpacked in this parable. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Finally, just a few words briefly on the parable, what it is and what it isn't. I mean, Jesus, I don't think he's continuing to address specifically this question about reward. Jesus has focused in on that in verses 28 and 29. There he speaks about this abundance, now a hundred times as much. And this parable is not an abundance of, of wages that is given. It's, it's a fair day's wage that is given. And so Jesus is moving on to, to teach about this attitude of entitlement. He's already spoken about the abundance of God's heart to give. And now he moves on to this new, but it's a complementary teaching point. The generosity of God's heart. It's still the same diamond that we behold, but we're focusing in on a different facet, a different side. And in telling this parable then, Jesus reveals to us the heart of God and exposes our own hearts. So the question, as we go through this parable, what is your response? What is your response? So if you haven't got your Bible open already, uh, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Jesus starts telling this parable, says this is how the kingdom of heaven works. This is how God's reign and rule works. And we're taken to the first century equivalent of a, a job center or a recruiting agency. It should be the marketplace. Now their day laborers, day workers would be waiting for someone to employ them. Uh, and a landowner at a time of harvest they would go out, they would get extra laborers, bring them in so that they could bring the harvest in. And so this landowner goes out early in the morning, six o'clock, ready for the start of the day. And he finds some laborers. He agrees to pay them a denarius for the day, which was a fair day's wage, it was a good day's wage. And they go off to the vineyard. But then when we get to verse three, at nine o'clock, he goes out and he sees others standing. He brings them, he employs them. Doesn't tell them how much he's going to pay them. Just say, I'll pay you a fair wage. Then we get to verse 5. Once again, he goes out at noon. And he goes out at 3. This all seems quite odd, really. Then we get to verses 6 and 7. He goes out once more. Now, at this point in verses 6 and 7, it's 5 o'clock. 
the, the working day ends at six. So there's one hour left. And he finds these people and he asks them in verse six, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? No one's hired us, they answered. Now the workers here, they're not lazy workers. They're last. They're the last of the pick. No one's hired them. No one wants them. It's that dreaded experience that Mark alluded to the other week. Now we're on a sports team and it's, it's time to pick the team. And the captains there stand at the front calling out names and you know how it goes. Best friends, best players first. It's the one instance where you do not want to be the last one standing because you all know what it means to be the last one standing. The workers here, these are the last ones standing. No one wanted them. Now, perhaps they look physically weak. Perhaps they've been employed before and they just weren't up to it compared to some other workers. Now, the day's almost gone. It's, it's five o'clock. They're still there in the market. Perhaps they're desperate, just hoping that they could get a little bit of work that day. Because in the first century, if you're a manual laborer, if you're not hired, you don't work. If you don't work, you don't get paid. If you don't get paid, then you don't eat. Your family doesn't eat. They needed work. But this landowner, he goes out, five o'clock, and employs them. And by the time they get to the field, by the time they start working, the day is pretty much going to be done. It's pretty much going to be over. And perhaps they're just hoping, well, you know, even if we get there for half an hour's work, maybe we will get something. And we can at least take something back to the family. Through these parables that Jesus tells, he tends to take everyday experiences. And yet, remember, Jesus is in the driving seat. He's controlling the narrative. And so it's worth us asking when we read these things, what's odd? Now, what's strange? What doesn't actually ring true to normal life? I mean, don't you think that that landowner made an awful lot of visits to find workers. We've got a friend who's a farmer. The very first time we went to their farm, it was potato harvest. Our place is buzzing. They've got all these people there. They've got their relatives. They've got extra employees who are bringing in all the crop. who are sorting it out. Now, this guy's been a farmer for years. His dad before him was a farmer. His dad has got a lot of experience. And he knows when it comes to harvest time. How many people are required to bring in the crop? There's no reason to assume anything different about this landowner here. And so why does he keep making so many visits? Has he miscalculated? Does he keep miscalculating? I mean, how fast are these vines producing grapes that he has to go out at 6 and then at 9 and then at 12 and then at 3 and then at 5? Why does he keep going out? Why does he keep employing people? Something else is going on here. Remember, a manual laborer, if they weren't hired, they didn't work. If they didn't work, they didn't get paid. If they didn't get paid, they didn't eat. And this landowner is, is just going out looking for workers. It's as though he is looking for an excuse to provide for people's needs. Looking for an excuse to bless them. 
And then in verse 8, we come to something else that is odd and that is strange. So the landowner, he calls his foreman in and he says, I want you to pay these people. It's the end of the day, but we're going to reverse the order in which we pay them. That's a weird thing again to happen. Jesus is drawing our attention to to something. There's a a point that wants to be made here. So again, it's telling us, it's signaling to us that we need to focus in here. And so he brings first those last workers, those undesirable workers. They're paid first. And those workers, verse 9, who are hired about 5 in the afternoon, they come, they receive a denarius. And so those first workers in verse 10, you can kind of picture the scene. They're there, they're watching it. They're like, those guys have not even been here for an hour. They've got a full day's wage. Now, we've been here all day, so we must be getting, doing the maths, like 12 days wages. At the very least, they're expecting more than a denarius. And yet, when they come, when they're given their wage, they receive exactly the same. A denarius, a day's wage. And so verse 11, they grumble and they complain. Now, let's be honest. We can understand why they're grumbling and why they're complaining. It just doesn't seem fair. Why should those people who've not even worked for an hour get paid the same as us, who've been working for a whole day, and we've had the heat of the sun boiling down on us, uh, and we don't get any more? The owner of the vineyard then replies to them with a series of questions. Verse 13, personally, I'm not being unfair to you, because didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Yes. He's not cheated them out of anything. He's not going back on his word. He's not giving them less than, than they agreed to. The next question. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Well, actually, yes, you do. But the third question, and this is where it stings, are you envious because I am generous? Why is it that these workers were angry? It's not because they were cheated out of something. It's not because they were treated Unfairly, the reason that they're angry, the reason they complain and they grumble is because grace is extended to others. And in their mind, that's not fair. And because we probably know something about this parable, we can miss feeling some of that sting. Because theologically, we know we shouldn't agree with those workers, those first workers who grumble and complain. Theologically, we know they are in the wrong. But practically, I mean, practically, how do you feel when someone cuts in that queue before you? Practically, how do you feel when that car bombs it down the motorway to pull in at the last moment? And our reactions in those moments, it reveals where our sense of fairness actually is. How we define fairness. When I was at university, there was a, a guy in the Christian Union. He's an interesting character, somewhat immature in the faith, and yet he seemed to get all the breaks. 
Uh, he was invited to join the, the church music team. He was given speaking opportunities, put in charge of various committees, hanging out with famous worship leaders of the day. I remember feeling frustrated at that moment. That God, because you see, you know everything. And you know how much I've been diligently serving you, how hard I've been trying, all the sacrifices that I've been making. So why is it that this guy gets all the breaks? And I don't. Now it says a lot about my own immaturity. And I could have written a theological essay that was sound talking about the grace of God. In fact, it was one of the things I was doing at university. I was studying biblical studies and theology. Sit me down and say, write an essay on it, Paul. I could do that. But my reaction in that moment actually revealed where my heart was at and how I truly defined fairness, this sense of entitlement. And what is fairness? Well, fairness is me getting what I want. And me getting what I want is that actually I'm elevated above other people. And this parable is designed to expose that within our heart. How do you react? How do you react at the success of others? When you see other people who are praised, who are honored, and you think they're undeserving. I mean, why do you think they're undeserving? Is it because we feel like we deserve more? The question that Jesus gets this landowner to ask, are you envious because I'm generous? And that word generous uh, is the word good. Remember just earlier in this passage, Jesus said to the young rich man, no one is good but God alone. And those moments of anger, those moments of frustration. Those times where we complain and we whine, they come about because our heart doesn't reflect, it's not aligned with God's heart. The reason those things come out is because the sin in our heart is exposed. It's not that there's any unrighteousness on God's side. The unrighteousness is on our side. That's where the reaction comes from. It reveals what is going on in our hearts. Are you envious? At those times of envy, are we envious Because God is generous. Because he is good. And then this is where the parable stops. The parable just stops here. Someone said, I can't remember who it was. But in in these parables, the parables stop, but they don't end. They stop, but they don't end. Because then how they end, well, that's kind of up to how we respond to it ourselves. The story continues then in our own life. And so when our hearts are exposed, when that word of God, when it cuts deep into our heart, when it discerns our thoughts and our intents, when we're given that glimpse of our blindness, how do we respond? What are we going to do? How will you respond to your response? This parable here, it lays bare our own hearts, but it also reveals something of the heart of God. 
And this owner who goes out into the marketplace again and again and again, looking for this excuse to bless, to provide for people's needs. And this owner who went out to hire the undesirables at a time of day where they couldn't really offer anything back in return. Now, if anyone is cheated, if anyone's shortchanged in this parable, really it's the landowner. It's out of their own riches, out of their wealth, no one else's, that they pay, that they give for those who are undeserving. And that's what we see in God's heart. Now, 2 Corinthians, we've got it up on the screen here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In this parable, we've focused in on one particular facet of this diamond. Now, the generousness of God's heart. And yet, as we behold the full diamond, we see that God gives generously and God gives abundantly. God gives us not what we deserve. And he gives us in an abundance. He is a fount of every blessing. We see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who at the greatest personal cost, who enters into our own poverty, the poverty of our will, the poverty of our own lives, takes our sin upon himself. Through his death on the cross, in order that we might share in his riches, the riches of his life, in order that our hearts may reflect God's heart. To be complete, to be whole, to be perfect. And so as the word of God, as it exposes our hearts, as we find ourselves in those moments where our reactions to something, where it betrays really what is going on in our heart, where our true belief is exposed, what do we do? Where do we go then? Well, we're invited and we are commanded in Scripture to come before God, to come before his throne of grace. And it's there that we receive mercy. It's there that we find grace to help us, that much needed grace. And as we see in this parable, the stinginess of our hearts revealed but the graciousness of God's heart. He calls us to come to him and find exactly what we need. So let's do that now as we pray. Father, as we considered last week, uh, that you would turn our eyes away from worthless things. As the psalmist also cries out to you, turn to me and have mercy on me. As you always do for those who love your name, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Father, would you direct our footsteps? Lord, as your word exposes the sin in our hearts, Lord, as we see just how far short that we fall, 
Though we, though we are, are thankful that you are a God who does not remain distant. But you have come out, you have, have sought after us, Lord, and you reach out to us. Lord, your gracious heart, the, the abundance of your provision, seen through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and we pray that you would change and transform us. Lord, that we would have hearts that reflect your heart. Lord, hearts that love to give, hearts that love to pour out. Lord, that we would be those who serve one another. Lord, who serve in this world. Lord, just as our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Lord, do that work within us and keep us seeking you and crying out to you. Lord, that a sin is exposed. Lord, that we would seek the changing, the transforming power. Lord, of your forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.